0: Australia, Oz, the land down under. A former penal colony that's become a major player in its region and which has some sway in the world at large, despite its small population of just over 25 million. Australia doesn't have a lot of people, but it's the sixth largest country by area with almost 7.7 million square kilometers, close to 3 million square miles. That means there's heaps of room for mystery. In a previous episode, we already touched upon Pine Gap, home of the Global 5 Eyes Surveillance Network, also called Australia's Area 51, due to reported UFO activity. And of course, some of the dominant conspiracy theories of the day run rampant there as well. COVID-19 denial, babble about the Great Reset, and even QAnon is making some inroads. But in this episode, we'll look at four mysterious events unique to the land of the long weekend, as it's also known. Three from the state of Victoria, where Melbourne is the capital, and one from South Australia, whose capital is Adelaide. So kick back, veg out, maybe skull a cold one as you hear what the John Dory is in Southern Australia with these dinkum furfies that are dead set chock-a-block with weirdness. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, Fair Fair Dinkum, dinkum. Four Four Mysteries mysteries from Down down under. Under. Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse, the podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. Hanging rock. Hanging rock. A 1913 article from a Melbourne newspaper recounts a strange local tale. In the year 1900, a group of girls attending Appleyard College, an upper class boarding school near the village of Mount Macedon in Victoria, about 60 kilometers northwest of Melbourne, decided to go on a picnic with staff for Valentine's Day. The site chosen was Hanging Rock, a prehistoric rock formation about 10 kilometers north of Mount Macedon. They arrived and had lunch, and then four of the girls snuck off to climb the interesting monolithic rock structures, though their chaperone had told them not to. Their math teacher, a Greta McCraw, saw them sneak off and decided she'd follow at a discreet distance, allowing them to have a moment of rebellion and individuality while still being able to keep an eye on them. As they went higher, three of the girls seemed to fall into something like a trance while going up higher and higher into the rocks only one of the girls, Edith, seemed unaffected. Unable to get her friends to turn around or even pay any attention to her, Edith fled down the outcropping in terror. Along the way, she saw Mrs. McCraw stripped down to her undergarments, also walking higher and higher, and also seeming to be in a trance. Edith arrived at the picnic area in hysterics. The other three girls and Mrs. McCraw were nowhere to be found. A search ensued and a man from Britain, a Mike FitzHubert, who was also having a picnic in the area, agreed to help with the search. He then also failed to return. One of his party, Albert Crundle, went out to look for him and found FitzHubert sitting on a rock in a daze next to one of the girls, Irma, who is unconscious and has scratches all over her arms and legs. The search continued, but no one else was found. Worried that perhaps their children weren't safe, parents began to take their daughters out of the school. Suspicions and rumors abounded, and the atmosphere in the town became untenable. Several staff quit, including a junior governess and her brother, who then subsequently died in a fire in the hotel they went to stay at. Civilized society in the town began to break down as accusations and suspicions took over. Sarah, a student who was not allowed to go on the picnic because she was in trouble, also disappeared. A few days later, she was found at the base of the school's tower, apparently having jumped to her death. Unable to cope with everything going on at her school, the headmistress, a Mrs. Hester Appleyard, returned to Hanging Rock and there hanged herself. The missing girls and teacher were never found. Appleyard College itself burnt to the ground in a bushfire the following year, as did the local police station, where all the records of this strange case were kept. A real mystery, to be sure. And... Wholly fictional. This is the story of the novel Picnic at Hanging Rock, written in 1967 by Joan Lindsay. Many think of it as one of the greatest novels to come out of Australia. In 1975, Peter Weir directed a film version which won several nominations and got a BAFTA for cinematography. BBC4 broadcast an abridged version with Lisa Harrow, and in 2018, Australian pay-TV channel Foxtel produced a six-episode miniseries adaptation, starring Natalie Dormer as Mrs. Appleyard. However, some people thought they saw similarities between the events in this novel and its subsequent adaptations and the disappearance of the three Beaumont children, ages four, seven, and nine, from Glenelg Beach in a suburb in the city of Adelaide in 1966, just a year before the novel was published. This weird tale, involving a possible murderer and sex offender, strange phone calls from a man claiming to have the children, a series of hoax letters and more, remains unsolved to this day, despite there being a $1 million reward. Once people made the connection between Picnic at Hanging Rock and the Beaumont children, well, others began to wonder if maybe it wasn't some sort of fictionalized account of a true mystery that happened somewhere around the year 1900. And then from there, it's a short leap to the mindset that, yes, in fact, it is a true story and that a whole industry of fringe pseudo-history sprang up, fed by active imaginations, people's desire to become famous or infamous, and the fact that the novel uses real locations. Was it that this account was true and all records were destroyed or covered up? That's what some people said. Maybe it was all code for a case of two girls who'd gone missing from a boarding school in that area in the late 19th century, and by reading this, quote, novel, you could find clues about that real-life case. That's what other people said. Several books and many articles were written on these and similar themes. For example, in 2017, travel writer Janelle McCulloch wrote the book Beyond the Rock, The Life of Joan Lindsay, and The Mystery of Picnic at Hanging Rock. In this, she claims that, yes, it is all real that Joan Lindsay, who is from the Melbourne area and was four years old in 1900, had heard about those two girls who'd vanished around Hanging Rock in the late 19th century and that it had, quote, profoundly affected her. McCulloch's book is just the latest in a long line of books and articles claiming to have some kind of special knowledge about what, quote, really happened. And then there's the hinky stuff. Like, some people claim that it is a true story, and the reason the girls and the math teacher were never found is that they were taken by aliens. aliens. Because you just knew the UFO people would dip their toes into these waters. Now, supposedly, at the premiere of the 1975 film, all the clocks at the cinema stopped at exactly 12 noon. When one of the producers was asked about this, he mentioned kind of offhandedly that all during filming, Everyone had had problems with their watches and clocks, and it had become something of a running joke to ask one another the time, because everyone always had a different answer. Colin Codwell, a friend of the author, told the Sydney Morning Herald that Joan Lindsay was a kind of a mystic and could sense things that other people couldn't. Lindsay herself said that the idea for the book came to her in a dream. But no, it is all fiction. Yes, written in such a way that perhaps it begs the question, but fiction all the same. In 1974, Lindsay said in an interview, quote, Well, it was written as a mystery, and it remains a mystery. If you can draw your own conclusions, that's fine, but I don't think that it matters. In 1987, three years after Lindsay's death at age 88, her editor Sandra Forbes published The Secret of Hanging Rock, This was originally supposed to be the last chapter of the novel where everything was explained, but Forbes had said that the novel was stronger and more interesting without it. By leaving it ambiguous, the reader would be more engaged and the work would have more staying power. So it was left out. But now, with all this nonsense going around about it maybe being true and maybe Lindsay has some kind of psychic abilities or secret knowledge, why not go ahead and make this final unpublished chapter available? In it, the girls each fell dizzy and, quote, being pulled from the inside out. A woman wearing only her undergarments, probably Mrs. McCraw, the math teacher, climbs up to the girls and shouts, THROUGH! And then she collapses. The girls loosen her corset to help her breathe, then remove their own corsets and throw them down the rocks. As the corsets are tumbling through the air, they freeze mid-air, no longer moving at all and also no longer casting any shadows. Mrs. McGraw wakes up, and together the group climbs further. They see a lizard going through an opening in a rock wall, so they try to follow it. Mrs. McGraw transforms into a crab before entering, and the girls, still human, follow. Two of them pass through a, quote, hole in space, but before the last girl, Irma, can go through, a boulder falls from above and blocks the entrance. The 12-page chapter ends with Irma beating against the rocks with her fists, trying to get in. And as we know from earlier, she eventually ends up back down at the base of Hanging Rock and taken back to school with minor injuries, but she would not talk about what happened. It's all very science fiction emphasis on the fiction, despite what people like Janelle McCulloch may say. But some mysteries are real, and they persist for a very long time. Life's, LIFE'S A, a BEACH, beach. Uh, THE, the Summerton man. 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 MAN At around 6.30 in the morning on December 1st, 1948, the body of a man in his early 40s was found in Somerton Park, a southern suburb of Adelaide. He was lying on the sandy beach across from the crippled children's home, propped up with his head against the seawall, legs stretched out and feet crossed as if he'd been just sitting there and resting or taking a nap before expiring. In fact, the first thing police thought was that he had indeed sat down to rest and somehow died while sleeping. He was wearing a knitted brown sweater and brown double-breasted suit jacket tailored in an American style. This, despite it being a warm day, December 1st is the first day of summer in the Southern Hemisphere. Under the jacket, he had a white collar shirt and a red, white, and blue striped tie he was also wearing brown suit trousers with one pocket that had been repaired using a rather unique orange thread, dress socks, and polished dress shoes. All the clothing labels had been removed. In his pockets, they found a train ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, another suburb 11 kilometers north, which had not been used, a city public transportation bus ticket, which had probably been used, an American-made aluminum or aluminum comb, and a half-empty pack of Juicy Fruit chewing gum, a box of Bryant and Bain matches, about a quarter full, an Army Club cigarette packet that actually didn't contain Army Club cigarettes but had Cancita cigarettes instead, and another cigarette unlit resting on his right coat collar. He was wearing no wedding ring, had no identification, and had no money on him, not even a wallet. And he had no hat, which is a little bit out of place for 1948. This clean-shaven man was also in good physical shape with soft hands seeming to indicate perhaps white-collar work as opposed to manual labor. His feet were similarly without calluses and his size eight shoes fit well. He was well manicured. He had rather strong calf muscles as if he were a dancer or perhaps someone who wore boots with a little bit of a high heel and his toes came together in such a way that suggested that he maybe often wore pointed toe boots of some sort. He was 5 foot 11, about 180 centimeters, around 165 to 175 pounds, that's 75 to 80 kilos, and had gray eyes, pale, coarse, wavy hair with a ginger tint to it, and a touch of gray at the temples. His hands were quite large, and nicotine stains on his fingers indicated he was probably a heavy smoker. During the autopsy, the pathologist noted blood in the man's stomach mixed in with the remnants of a pasty eaten three or four hours before his death. Sort of an Australian hot pocket. There was congestion in his kidneys, liver, stomach lining, and brains, and his spleen was three times normal size. Time of death was put at about 2 a.m. It almost looked like a poisoning except that no such substances could be found in his body or bloodstream. The coroner rather thought maybe he died of natural causes of some sort, but noted that if a poison had been used, it probably would have been sleeping pills or a barbiturate. However, that pasty, probably eaten around 10 p.m. or so, would probably not have been what introduced the drugs into his body, if indeed that is even what happened cause of death was ruled unknown, and since the man had no ID and his dental records and fingerprints had no match in the system in 1948, his identity remained a mystery. Police canvassed the area and heard from locals that someone who possibly looked like this man had been seen the previous evening in the same spot and position about seven in the evening. He had raised his right arm and extended it all the way out and then let it drop. Someone else said they saw him 30 to 60 minutes later, but he was not moving at all. That couple who saw him then noted that he did not seem bothered either by the many mosquitoes out that evening, which made them think that he was maybe asleep or drunk. The day after the body was found, a newspaper called The Advertiser printed an article about the body being found on the beach and identifying it as local man E.C. Johnson for some reason. The day after that, E.C. Johnson walked into a police station to show that he was not in fact dead." On the 5th, a search of military records showed some military man identified as, quote, Solomonson, who kind of matched the description of the dead man, had been seen drinking at a hotel in the nearby suburb of Glenig on November 30th. Ten days after the body was found, it was embalmed to preserve it in the hopes that a positive ID might be made in the future. Some accounts say this is the very first time South Australian police had ever done this, while other accounts say that, that this was, in fact, a common practice at the time. So, uh... In early January, two people told the police they thought that the dead man was Robert Walsh, a 63-year-old woodcutter. Yet the Somerton man, as he was becoming known, had no calluses on his hands and was certainly much younger than 63. Over the next weeks, a number of other false identifications would be made, including that it was a man who lived in the city of Darwin along the North Coast, a man who worked on a steamship, a military man, a stable worker who had gone missing, a woman in Victoria's missing brother, and a Swede. Some thought the person had to be American because of the distinctive American-style tailoring of his coat. Others thought he was a, quote, Britisher, since the reddish hair might indicate some sort of Scottish ancestry. He was uncircumcised, so probably not Jewish. Six weeks after the mysterious man's body was discovered, workers in the cloakroom at the Adelaide train station discovered a fairly new, brown suitcase that had been checked in on November 30th at 11 in the morning. Inside, they found clothing including a red checkered dressing gown, pajamas, a pair of red felt slippers size 7, four pairs of underwear, and a pair of light brown trousers with sand in the cuffs and three dry cleaning marks. Again, all the labels were removed. But police also found a tie with the name T, the letter T, Keen with an E on the end, and a laundry bag that also had Keen with an E written on it, and an undershirt with Keen no final E written on that. Inside was also a man's shaving kit, a table knife that had been cut down to a short sharp point, a pair of sharpened scissors, a square of zinc probably used as a sort of a protective covering for that knife and the scissors, a screwdriver that is commonly used by electricians, and a brush used on merchant ships for stenciling cargo boxes. A thread card of waxed orange thread, Barbour brand, was also found, and this was the same thread that had repaired one of the Somerton Man's pants pockets. This thread was not available in Australia at the time and had to have been purchased outside the country a pen and some stationery were also found, and they found sixpence in change, despite later reports saying that the Somerton man had no money at all in any of his belongings. What would sure seem like a bunch of tasty, helpful clues actually amounted to nothing. But then somebody went back to take a closer look at the clothes the man had been wearing when he was discovered and found a tiny, sewn-up area in one of the pants' pockets. Inside this seal bit was a small, rolled-up scrap of paper, seeming to have been very neatly torn from a book. Printed on it were the Persian words, "tamam Shud, in a highly stylized font. Libraries were asked about this, and one of them said that these were the last words of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. The words basically mean, the end, or it is finished, kind of like how you'd end a, a book or a, a story. Because of this finding, the case is also sometimes called the Shud case. Police asked the public for help finding the copy of this book that this scrap had been torn from. It should be quite distinctive and match the tear pattern. A man identified in records as, quote, Ronald Francis, which is not his real name, but the police just used that so he could keep his identity private, said it was from a 1941 printing of Fitzgerald's English translation. This Ronald Francis said he'd noticed the missing bit but thought nothing of it until seeing the police appeal in the newspapers. And yet there are also conflicting accounts about how exactly this book was found. Another version says the missing section was discovered two weeks before the body was found, another one says a week after, another one says a few days after, and several say that the book itself was found in the backseat of an unlocked car in the suburb of Glenig. So, uh... But anyway, it was certainly from the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. This is a series of poetic quatrains first written by the great Persian astronomer poet Omar Khayyam, who lived in the late 11th and early 12th centuries CE. It was first translated into English in 1859 by the English poet Edward Fitzgerald. It had become quite popular across the English-speaking world by the 1880s, and there was even something of a cult around it by the turn of the century. Omar Khayyam seemed to reject much of the mysticism of the Sufis promoting a more materialistic philosophy. The overall theme of the poems was that one should live one's life as completely as possible and take any pleasures that life offers you no matter how small. There's a lot in there about sitting in a meadow or under a tree with some very nice food and drink and a beloved one and that that experience is better than being in paradise. One purpose of living in this way is so that, when it comes time for one's death, you have no regrets. Sort of a relaxed hedonism, if you will. Well, thought the police, sounds like this guy figured his life was at an end and killed himself using some kind of a poison. Yeah, that could be one interpretation, but then others examined the copy of the book that that Tamum Shud bit had been ripped from, and there on the back blank page, there were indentations showing five lines of handwriting in all capital letters. So, you know, they did the pencil trick to reveal what these were. And some of them were written in a way that made them a bit ambiguous, but they seemed to be kind of in a code. Police and later experts took a look at it, but were unable to crack it. Also written in the back of the book was a telephone number. When police called it, they found it belonged to a Jessica Ellen Thompson, nay Harkness, born in Sydney, but at the time resident of the suburb of Glenig. Her house, in fact, was 400 meters from where the body was found. She told the police she had no idea why the unidentified man would have her phone number or be hanging around in her neighborhood. She didn't know him. However, the previous year, a neighbor told her that a man had come round the house when she wasn't home and asked about her. Some thought that maybe Joe, as she was known by those who knew her, was being kind of evasive, and it did seem like she did in fact know the identity of this man. When shown a cast taken of the man before his mid-January burial, she said she did not recognize him, but Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean noted that she was, quote, completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. Some years later, another investigator again showed her the plaster cast, which she only glanced at once and then refused to look at again. Several investigators thought for sure she knew more than she was letting on, and a few even speculated that her name, Jessica Thompson, or maybe her maiden name, Harkness, was somehow a key to unlocking the weird code. Thompson, or Harkness as she was known back then, told them that she herself had owned a copy of the Rubaiyat back in 1945 when she'd been working at a military hospital in Sydney. She had gifted it to a lieutenant named Alf Boxhall who worked for the Royal Engineers and later for a special operations unit. Later in 1945, she moved to Melbourne, met a man named Prosper Thompson, and fell in love. After the war, she got a letter from Alf Boxall, but she told him that sorry, she was married now, so maybe this dead guy was this Boxall fellow, the police thought. However, Boxall, by all accounts, looked nothing at all like the Somerton Man. About 12 miles, 20 kilometers north of Somerton, on June 6th, the body of a two-year-old child was found in a sack next to an adult man who was unconscious in some sandy hills in Largs Bay. They were found by local resident Neil McRae, who said he'd had a dream the night before about them and where to find them. The boy was Clive Magnuson, and the man was the boy's father, Keith Waldemore Magnuson. Keith was very weak and taken to hospital and then transferred to a mental health facility. His wife and young Clive's mother was located and informed of the tragedy. It turned out the two had been missing for four days and the boy had died some 24 hours before his body had been found by the lucky dreamer McRae. cause unknown but it was certainly not natural causes. A bit later, the wife, whose name was Roma, contacted police to tell them a man wearing a mask and driving a cream-colored car had almost run her over outside of her home. When he missed, he stopped the car, backed up, rolled down his window, and told her, quote, keep away from the police or else. She also said she'd seen several strange men hanging around her house. Maybe all this had something to do with her husband's interest in the Somerton man, or the Taman Shud case, as it was known. After reading a number of newspaper stories about it, you see, her husband had become convinced that the unknown body I found on the beach in December was a man he'd worked with back in 1939, a man named Carl Thompson. Police questioned her repeatedly, and finally she just kind of fell apart from the stress of all of it and had to be hospitalized. While she was receiving medical treatment, the secretary for the Large North Progress Association got a phone call from an unknown man who told him to stay away from anything to do with the Magnuson case or he'd, quote, have an accident. The mayor of nearby Port Adelaide also got calls, three of them, threatening the same thing if he, quote, stuck his nose into the Magnuson affair. Police looked into this and also threatening calls made around the same time to a woman in the area whose husband had died and their conclusion was that yes, all of these were connected, but it was just some weird mean-spirited hoaxer. Of course, police dismissed McCray's claims of a prophetic nocturnal dream, figuring he probably just chanced upon the scene and then made up the whole dream part to make himself seem more interesting. With a second mystery in six months happening in the area, the Magnuson case and the Tom summerton slash Somerton Man case weren't connected. Having gathered as much information as they could from the Somerton man's body on june fourteenth, police buried it in a grave with the inscription quote here lies the unknown man who was found at Somerton Beach first december nineteen forty eight. More dribs and drads trickled in locally, like a report that an unknown man had stayed for a few days, right around the time of the Somerton man's death, in either room 21 or 23 of the Strathmore Hotel across from the main train station. This man spoke only English and had what looked like a black doctor's bag. An employee snuck a peek in the bag, because I guess why wouldn't you, and saw something that looked like a needle. This man had never been found. In July, Alf Boxhall was located, still alive and living in Sydney, and so the dead man wasn't him. Sometime later, flowers started showing up on the Somerton man's grave, and no one could discover who was leaving them. In 1959, a couple came forward to say that they'd seen a well-dressed man carrying an another man who was unconscious over his shoulder near Somerton Beach the evening of November 30, 1948. Good of them to come forward 11 years later. And in November 1959, a prison inmate in New Zealand named E.B. Commons said that he knew who the Somerton Man was, but both of these ended up going nowhere. And so the mystery persisted, being one of the most tantalizing in modern Australian history. Now, New Yorkers and Londoners and the like are probably thinking, so what? Keep in mind, this is Australia, and things like this just don't really happen that often there. So yes, it was noteworthy and it stayed in people's minds for decades. And, as we know, people with a question mark hanging over them often come up with what they like to call theories to try and answer it regardless of what the actual evidence is. Maybe the Summerton man was a spurned lover who killed himself. Maybe he was a ballet dancer who'd been eliminated by rivals. I mean, just look at those calves. Or maybe he was some sort of a spy who'd been taken out 007 style. Russia had liberated large portions of Europe at the end of World War II, and they were not really going to set them free. So in 1948, the Cold War was kicking off. The unknown dead man maybe looked a little bit Slavic, at least to some people. And there is that weird encrypted code... There was a report that an unnamed man had gone to the police and said the body belonged to Klement Yefremovich Voroshilov, a top-ranking Stalin-era Soviet official who'd been killed by enemies and then dumped. Never mind that, in 1957, Voroshilov was in his fourth year as chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet, a position he would hold until 1960, and he lived until 1969. So clearly, that wasn't true. Kate Thompson, daughter of Jessica Thompson, née Harkness, who the police thought acted like she knew who the unknown man was, said she thought it was possible that both her mother and the dead man had been spies. In fact, other family members floated the idea that Robin Thompson, Kate's brother and Jessica's son, had actually been fathered by the unknown man found on the beach. After all, you see, Robin went on to become a ballet dancer as an adult as if this is a genetic thing. Then John Rao, attorney general of South Australia, decided to exhume the body of the Somerton man in 2011 and try and see if there was any DNA they could still pull out since the technology had come rather far by then. Testing was done in a number of labs and on July 26, 2022, Professor Derek Abbott of the University of Adelaide and American genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick announced that they had identified the Somerton Man. He was Melbourne-born electrical engineer Carl Webb. Webb had been born in Melbourne in 1905, which would have made him 43 when he died on that beach. He started his working life in a bakery, but then retrained in electrical engineering when that venture went bankrupt. In 1941, in his mid-30s, he married Dorothy Robertson, but Carl was a solitary type, going to sleep around seven o'clock every evening and having very few friends. He also had something of a temper and could become quite irate and even violent, even about small things, often yelling at his wife and even striking her. He liked poetry and even wrote some of his own, often about death. In 1946, he tried to kill himself by inhaling a large amount of ether. Dorothy had helped him recover, but he was angry at her for the help, and things got worse. After a few months of this, she finally left him, booting him out of their house the next year, which would be 1947. She did not hear from her husband again, and in 1951, filed for divorce because of desertion, which was granted in 1952. But as we now know, he was already dead by then. What about those American-style clothes he had been wearing? Well, Carl's sister, Frida Grace, had lived not far from Carl, and her son had died in World War II, and some of the items he'd left behind were clothes made in the U.S. His last name was Keen, the same name that was found in some of the clothes and the dry-cleaning slips found in that suitcase. Well, what about that weird code? Professor Abbott of the University of Adelaide, who helped make the positive identification, thought that these might have been coded names of horses, as Carl Webb loved to bet on horse races, though he wasn't very often successful. Abbott and Fitzpatrick think Carl Webb had been an angry man, disappointed in life, violent, and very much focused on death, who, having driven away most of the people in his life, including his wife, finally poisoned himself on the beach in Somerton on the last day of November 1948. And so the mystery of the Somerton Man was finally solved through a combination of modern science and the niggling itch of the unanswered question mark that had hung over this case for 73 years. He was not a spy or the ultimate expression of a broken heart. He was just a mean-spirited, melancholy guy who disliked living and decided that one day he would stop. And so ended the great mystery of the Somerton Man. Another of Australia's greatest mysteries also happened on a beach, or near one, anyway.
1: Harry Harry pulls pulls a a Harry Harry.
0: In the Arvo of December 17, 1967, Arvo is Australian slang for afternoon, Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt went for a swim in the ocean off Cheviot Beach in Portsea, a seaside town at the tip of the Mornington Peninsula, south of Melbourne. He went into the water about 12:15 p.m., seemed to get caught in an undertow and dragged further out away from shore, went under the water and never came up again. His body was never found. Had it been anyone else, well, what the sea wants, the sea will have, as Australian singer-songwriter Sarah Blasco named her 2006 album But this was the PM, and so a search was conducted. In fact, one of the largest search operations in Australian history, involving boats, helicopters, and 340 people, including divers from the Victoria Police and two naval dive teams. The seas were pretty rough, and the search kept getting halted. By the 22nd, he was assumed dead and a memorial service was held at St. Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne, attended by untold thousands outside and 2,000 people inside, including Charles, Prince of Wales from the UK, the Secretary General of the UN, U.S. President Lyndon Johnson, who was supposedly seen crying the PMs of New Zealand, Singapore, Taiwan, and Thailand, and the President of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos, plus the Presidents of South Korea and South Vietnam. This was during the Vietnam War, so there was still a South Vietnam. Foreign ministers from India, Indonesia, Japan, Malaysia, Fiji, and Western Samoa also attended. However, search efforts continued nonetheless until January 5th, 19 days after he disappeared, and then they were finally called off. For Tom Frame, Holt's official biographer, it was obvious that the PM had drowned, as so many Australians do each year. Holt had been very capable in the water and went swimming so often that the newspaper The Australian had a headline titled, PM Advised to Swim Less, on the advice of his doctor. Holt was in great shape, even though he was 59, and though the water had been anything but calm that day, he'd happily swum in worse conditions, and he'd been swimming in the area before, so he knew its quirks. Frame thought it was possible that Holt had been attacked by a jellyfish, or maybe even a shark, or maybe he'd had a heart attack after getting caught in an undertow and pushed out to deeper waters. Others speculated maybe he had killed himself. Some reported he'd been a little bit depressed in the weeks leading up to the disappearance and maybe everything had just become a bit too much for him. However, his wife Zara said Harry was, quote, too selfish to kill himself, and a police investigation the next year in 1968 ruled out this possibility. People who knew him said Holt was a man in love with life with big plans for the future, and even his public persona was of a Hale man who was incredibly active and incredibly engaged. Lawrence Newell, the police inspector in charge of the case, said he thought Holt's unfortunate demise was the result of his overconfidence in his swimming abilities and just plain old rough seas. In 2005, almost 38 years after the fact, the Victoria coroner finally officially ruled Holt's death to be accidental drowning. This was one of the most famous cases of its kind in the nation's history. In fact, in the time-honored tradition of irreverent Aussie slang, a new term arose to, quote, do a Harry or to do a Harry Holt, which is rhyming slang for to bolt, as in to make a sudden exit from a situation. For example, I just did a Harry in the middle of the night to avoid an uncomfortable morning. Some people quipped that Harry himself had done a Harry. Writer Bill Bryson, in his extremely funny 2000 book on Australia called Down Under in the UK and in a sunburned country in America, jokes that Holt's dip in the waters off Portsea was, quote, the swim that needed no towel. In 1994, biographer Tom Frame also mentioned that he thought that Holt had gone into the water that day to impress a woman named Marjorie Gillespie, with whom he'd been having an affair. For many Aussie men, this was a classic Aussie death, Bloke bites off more than he can chew, trying to impress Ashila. But other people came up with far more complicated and nefarious theories. Needless to say, when the Prime Minister vanishes, newspapers write about it, and evening editions on December 17th carried the tale. The very next day, an American lawyer wrote a letter saying that he thought the chances were better than 50% that Holt had been killed, quote, from expert sabotage, probably foreign. The letter went on to say that maybe Holt had been slipped, quote, some delayed effect drug, which he might have got in refreshments on his way to the beach. This was, of course, pure speculation, and over the years, newspapers and police would receive dozens and dozens and dozens of letters musing on this possibility and many, many others. On January 30th, 1968, the Australian High Commission in India got a letter saying that a local mystic, Dadi Balsara, had had a vision and could point officials to the location of Holt's body through an induced mystical trance. Mr. Balsara even offered to pay for his trip to Australia himself if the government could furnish him with, quote, facilities. The authorities assured him all efforts possible were being made, but thank you just the same. Later in 1968, the Sunday Observer printed an article that speculated Holt had been assassinated by the CIA because he'd possibly wanted to pull Australians out of the debacle in Vietnam, where the Tet Offensive was in full swing and almost no one thought the Americans had any hope of winning anymore. Plus, Holt was a member of the Liberal Party, quite left-wing, and the Americans were terrified of anybody who might be, quote, soft on communism. And so, the rumor went, they rubbed him out as a precaution. While no evidence of this has ever come to light, it would later be discovered that the CIA had infiltrated Australian trade unions. Still more conspiracy theories cropped up. He'd been given a nerve agent by North Vietnamese operatives. He'd faked his own death so he could run away with a secret lover, not Marjorie Gillespie, who is still around, but another woman altogether. In 1983, a book titled, The Prime Minister Was a Spy, by UK journalist, Anthony Gray, put forward the idea that Holt had been a spy for China for most of his adult life and had faked his own death that day in December 67, slipping under the water, meeting up with Chinese divers, and then being put aboard a Chinese midget submarine stationed in the area. His family dismissed this idea as ridiculous. As his wife Zara pointed out, he didn't even like Chinese cooking. Gray had an anonymous source on this, Holt was a Chinese spy, idea, an insider who only spoke to him over the phone, and who said that his source was a civil servant from Iraq, but convoluted. A later investigation revealed that this source was a former officer of the Australian Royal Navy, one Ronald Titcombe, who'd mustered out of the service in 1968 in order to avoid a court-martial, started several businesses, all of which failed, and then got into trouble for failing to disclose accurate financial records. When the newspaper The Observer wrote that this book, The Prime Minister Was a Spy, was a total fabrication, Titcombe tried to sue them under British libel law, which applies in Australia. This says if you can prove something is undeniably true in court, then it isn't libel. The observer was unable to prove to the court that Tickham had acted in bad faith when he had talked to Anthony Gray, and so therefore Gray won the case and a cash settlement. After his book on Holt's alleged Chinese spying, he got heavily into UFOs in the 90s and eventually came to the conclusion that our planet has been being visited by aliens for centuries which dovetails quite nicely into our last story. Learning Learning to to Fly, a song by Pink Floyd on their 1987 album A Momentary Lapse of Reason, the album that proved that, even without Roger Waters, they still sounded like Pink Floyd. Shortly before sunset, at 6.19 p.m. on October 21, 1978, 20-year-old flying enthusiast Frederick Valentich took off from Moorabbin General Aviation Airport in southeastern Melbourne, about 40 kilometers from where Harry Holt disappeared as the crow flies, He was flying a rented Cessna single-engine 182L, callsign VHDSJ, bound for King Island, the largest of the New Year group of islands belonging to Tasmania, about 200 kilometers southwest of Melbourne across the Bass Strait. The plane had recently been refueled and had enough juice to fly for 800 kilometers or more, so plenty. Valentech had over 150 hours of flight time logged and had tried repeatedly to get into the Royal Australian Air Force, the RAAF, but lacked the proper education. He tried to get a job as a commercial pilot, but failed all of his tests, twice. He'd also been cited for once flying into controlled airspace over Sydney and twice for flying into a cloud on purpose, both of which could have initiated criminal charges. He loved flying, but apparently he wasn't all that great at it. No one really knows why he was heading to King Island that night. He had told some friends he was going there to pick up a shipment of crayfish, but he told flight officials in Melbourne he was going to pick up some friends, and later both claims would be found to be completely untrue. He also neglected to tell the control tower on King Island that he was coming. At 7.06 p.m., just a little bit after sunset, he was flying near Cape Otway, heading out to go over the Bass Strait at about 4,500 feet, or 1,500 meters in altitude, when a large unknown craft with four bright landing lights flew over him going quite fast, only about 100 feet, that's 30 meters, above his cesta, which is a little too close for comfort. He radioed in to Melbourne, but they told him there were no other airplanes in the sky around him. This mysterious craft then changed direction and came at him from the east passing by and then sort of circling or orbiting his plane. He told the Melbourne Tower it felt as if the pilot were sort of playing with him. On one pass, he saw the craft was made of a shiny metal and had green lights. Still in radio contact, he described its actions and again was told there were no other craft in the vicinity. Sometimes the strange aircraft would seem to buzz him, sometimes circle him, and sometimes just hover above his airplane. His engine then seemed to develop problems. Coughing is how he put it. The Melbourne Tower asked him to clarify where he was going. He replied, quote, My intentions are uh, to go to King Island. Uh, Melbourne, that strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. Two seconds of silence. It is hovering, and it is not an aircraft. There then follows 17 seconds of a strange staccato noise like metal scraping on metal, and then the radio cuts out. Contact is lost at 7.12 p.m. Frederick Valentich never arrived at King Island, and he was never seen again. (music) Assuming he had crashed into the waters of the Bass Strait, a search was conducted using both air and watercraft. Police had got a report that an unknown aircraft had landed near Cape Otway, but nothing came of that. Other than that, there were no signs at all of the Cessna, and after 4 days, the search was called off on October 25th. What could have happened? Well, more seasoned pilots suggested maybe Valentine had become disoriented and was flying upside down, which is not as ridiculous as it sounds. This happens a lot more often than you might think. If this were the case, he would have seen his own plane lights reflected off the water but thought they were above him because he didn't know he was upside down, and then when he tried to climb to avoid them, he would have actually been going down and crashed into the water. One objection to this theory is that the 182 series of Cessna use a gravity feed fuel system and so they can't really fly upside down for very long. Well, another theory went, perhaps he killed himself. But interviews with people who knew him quickly ruled this out. Still others thought maybe he was so frustrated at continually trying to have an aviation career and failing that he staged his own disappearance, starting a new life somewhere where he would not be dogged by his failure to get a piloting job. In July 1983, an engine cowl flap washed up on Flinders Island, way over on the east side of the Bass Strait. Experts looked at it and determined that it was from a Cessna 182 series and as such probably belonged to Valentich's plane. So, everybody thought, he probably did just crash into the water. A plaque was placed on Lighthouse Road near Cape Otway commemorating the event. It is titled, The Unknown. But for UFO people, the only explanation was a UFO. In 1982, Ground Saucer Watch, based in Arizona in the U.S., claimed to have photographs supplied by a Canadian newspaper taken by a Roy Manifold, a plumber near Crayfish Bay and the Cape Otway Lighthouse in Australia. These showed some sort of object flying out of the water at high speed just off the coast, but the images are quite indistinct and just about impossible to make out clearly. A few UFO enthusiasts insisted the radio tower had also detected the strange object and described it in detail, but then this was edited out of the publicly available transcript of the radio communications. Airport officials said this was bull dust, which is a polite Aussie way of saying nonsense, but then you would expect them to deny it, wouldn't you? On October 25th, the day the search was called off, his father mentioned that Valentech had been quite paranoid about UFOs and frequently mentioned he was worried one might attack him while he was flying. He also said that his son had spent a lot of free time researching UFOs and it was kind of a hobby for him. After the search was ended, his father went on to say that he thought maybe his son had been abducted and was being, quote, held by people from another planet. He further speculated that maybe these beings would return him, quote, in a week or so. However, they never did. That same day, a story came out on the wire services that a bank manager in Geelong, between Melbourne and Cape Otway, and his wife had seen a star-shaped object with red and green flickering lights flying along following a highway the couple was driving on. Reports also came in from King Island that locals there had been seeing strange lights in their skies for over a month. Some people in the area say they'd seen odd green lights in the sky that night, but these reports only started coming in after the radio transcript that mentions green lights was published in a local newspaper, so probably not legit. In the year 2014, a farmer near Cape Otway said that on the 22nd, the day after the disappearance, he had seen a large unknown craft about 30 meters across flying over his land with a single-engine airplane attached to its hull, and this airplane was leaking oil. This was such an odd sight, he wrote down the tail number of the damaged plane, V-H-D-S-J, the same as Valentix Cessna. Why it took him 36 years to say anything about this is unknown, and this report was also summarily ignored. In 2013, a U.S. Air Force pilot who was also an astronomer looked at the radio transcripts and thought maybe Valentich had experienced what's called the tilted horizon illusion, where you think you're not flying level, but you really are. Then, when you try and correct for it, So that you will be flying level, except you were flying level, so now you've tilted your plane, you cause what's called a graveyard spiral that makes the plane's fuel flow slower and then causes an engine stall and a crash. The lights he'd seen in the sky were Venus, Mars, Mercury, and the star Antares, all grouped together in the sky that night, and he mistook them for lights on some kind of large aircraft, partly fueled by his imagination and interest in UFOs. Also, he had never flown at night over the water before, so all of these conditions came together in his confused mind. This is now the generally accepted explanation for what happened to Frederick Valentich on October 21st, 1978. And so there you have it, four mysteries from the land down under, one of which was fictitious entirely, and yet some people still insist it isn't really, two which got solved, and one, the disappearance of the PM, which never did. However, it's a big place, and there are lots of other mysteries to be examined in the continent country of Australia, which we will do in a future episode of Conspiracy Clearing House. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.